Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's B520, a new shareable assessment developed by Dr. Daniel Crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one. Get started today at orion.com forward slash B520. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sam Sivarajan, author of the new book, Uphill, How to Apply Ancient Wisdom and Modern Science to Life's Choices and Challenges. Sam has a doctoral degree in behavioral finance and has a fascinating career that spans everything from wealth management to decision-making and many different things in between. And he's here today to talk about his new book, and help us make sense of messy markets and messy lives. Dr. Sam, welcome. Thank you, Daniel. It's, a very, it's my pleasure to be here. Yes, it's good to see you from Toronto, where I will be headed very soon. So warm it up for me a little bit, my man. I can't promise it, but I'll try. <laughs> okay. So uh, you're a Canadian. We've spent the last little bit talking about uh, talking about some of the prettier parts of Canada. And another great Canadian, Marshall McLuhan, once said that the medium is the message. Now, I thought the medium of your book was really interesting. It's written in a narrative nonfiction style. Uh, it's the story of a man who's let go from his corporate job and goes on a bucket list adventure uh, to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. So I'm curious, as a behavioral scientist, as someone who knows what you know about the world, this doesn't seem haphazard to me. And I'm wondering why you chose a story as the best means to convey behavioral and philosophical truths. I think it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I think there's probably a couple of things that were going through my mind. You know, primarily, I felt that the topics, uh, Stoic philosophy and behavioral science, was just too esoteric for most people to relate to. But the message of the book, what I was trying to get home at is that we can make better decisions and in the process live better, more fulfilled lives. I think that's a message that applies to everyone. So I took the view that a story format is not only more fun to read, but with characters that are relatable, it is much more likely that the key lessons are conveyed uh, accurately. And you, and you point out correctly that there is research that supports the view that we learn better by direct means, so direct experience. But what I think is interesting is that neurologically, and you know this, that humans are relatively unique among animals. While we have neurons in our brain that drive brain functions, humans also have mirror neurons that activate not only when we ourselves act, but when we observe the same action performed by somebody else. So in this context, that is why we can imagine, you know, the future, or imagine a different reality, or we can empathize with somebody else on what they're going through. And so the narrative, in my view, substitutes for the direct experience of the reader by showcasing characters and context that the, the readers and their mirror neurons can easily relate to. Yeah, that's beautiful. The, the mirror neurons research is so fascinating. If you go back and look at some of the early research into mirror neurons, some of it 
was discovered quite by accident. They were doing fMRI studies on mm-hmm. some sorts of primates, and when they would find, they would find that when the primates would observe the researchers eating, the parts of their brain associated with eating would activate, even exactly if just observing other people. My favorite is these unboxing videos that my kids watch because, you know, like watching some other kid open a toy seems really kind of crazy in some respects. But when you understand neurons, uh, there's there's really something to it. And it means I don't have to buy them the toy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful story. I've I've shied away from writing in this sort of narrative style because I can't do it. But you're quite a good uh, you're quite a good fiction writer. So I thought it was I thought it was very, very, very good. Um, Thank you. So Sam, chapter uh, chapter three of your book touches on a concept that I think is really important, and I think it's a little bit under discussed as part of our financial or our behavioral journey. And this is the idea of making sure we're climbing the right ladder. You know, how do we pursue the right things and the things that have the potential to give us real joy and real satisfaction? When you dig into the research around money and happiness and enough, there's a lot of smoke screens out there, Mm -hmm. you know, from wealth to fame to success to popularity. These are things that we think should have Mm -hmm. the potential to sate, like things that we think should have the potential to bring us happiness and joy. And, you know, by and large, they don't. So what advice can you give us from from your background on ensuring that we are climbing the right ladder and and why do we get it so wrong? Well, I think I'd be careful about giving advice. I think that this is a a journey that we all do and, uh, you know, I think we make our mistakes along the process. But I think that the research that I've done in, in the past and more specifically for the book I think it has given me some, you know, some pointers that, you know, I can share with uh, with your listeners. So, as you say, there's been a lot that has been written about external motivations. As you mentioned, money, wealth, status, power versus internal motivations, purpose, meaning, etc. And the general consensus is that internal motivations are stronger and more sustainable. And, you know, in psychology, as you know, there is the concept of the hedonic treadmill. Um, so, you know, that do we want, this is the concept that you know, there's an innate base level of happiness that we all have. And there, it takes, you know, any move away from it by situation is temporary. So winning a lottery can make you happier, but you over after five years, you get back to a baseline of uh, your baseline of happiness. Uh, if you have a, a major injury, for example, you can be uh, it, it can you know decrease your level of happiness, but over time you learn to adapt and adjust. So this is the the idea that external factors have a limited impact on our uh, level of happiness, which is mostly driven by personality, genetics, you know, your environment, and everything else that you have. The you know, the challenge is that we are driven as, you know, I believe that we're driven as a society to focus on external motivations, whether that's in the investment world or whether it's in the corporate uh, or professional world. You know, we uh, are focused on getting that next promotion, that next bonus, that next uh, recognition. And the challenge, and as the psychology tells us with that hedonic treadmill, is that 
even when we achieve that next promotion or the next bonus, the the dopamine hit or the pleasure hit is temporary and it goes away. And in order to feel it again, we need to go keep on the treadmill to get the next promotion and the next bonus, etc. So it never ends. But intrinsic motivations, on the other hand, um, you know, finding meaning, finding purpose, you know, finding community, you know, like people of, uh, that you share uh, 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 values and vision and uh, uh, purpose with, it's harder to identify and it's harder to achieve, but the satisfaction and meaning lasts much longer. And I think we see that in society today. We are, without a doubt, wealthier and better off than any previous generation in history. But the stats show, the research show, the data show that the levels of unhappiness, stress, and dissatisfaction are higher than ever before. So there's a disconnect between this achievement um, on that extern, external motivations that we front that we can talk about versus the, 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 what we say that we're searching for, which is happiness. You know, in, in my research, and uh, many of your listeners might uh, know him, but Clayton Christensen, who's unfortunately passed, was a Harvard Business School professor, and he wrote this really influential book called How Will You Measure Your Life? And, uh, you know, in it, he gives examples of identifying core principles or values you know, what is most important, um, you know, to to you as an individual. Now, I won't spoil the book by telling you what some of the core examples he uses. But what I thought was interesting is that he provides a, a framework. Now, admittedly, it's not an algorithm. It isn't a trade-off where you say, okay, 10% more status. Uh, for 10% more status, I'm willing to give up 15% of my family time. It doesn't work that way. But I think the framework does give you a basis on which to evaluate actions. And I think I'll leave your listeners with, uh, you know, this last comment. Uh, the philosopher, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said that, you know, life is lived forwards, but only understood backwards. So what to me, what that means is that we will make decisions, whether it's in investing, whether it's in life, whether it's in our career, and we will make mistakes. But you know, using this right ladder or this right framework, you know, means that with the right mindset and the right approach, number one, we can avoid the worst mistakes before they happen. And number two, knowing that we're human and will make mistakes nevertheless, we can course correct the ones that we end up do end up making. Yeah. Well, you are absolutely speaking my language, quoting one of my business heroes and my absolute favorite philosopher of all time. So great perspective. And if you find yourself on that wrong ladder, what do you, I mean, do you, do you just climb back down and start, start at the bottom of the new one? You know what? I, I think each situation is going to be different and each uh, person is going to make the, a, a different calculation, but you're right. I think part of, you know, the idea of this, you know, the, 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 the cliche of a midlife crisis for many people is very much that fact, you know, they've been climbing up the, the, the ladder and, you know, like, uh, uh, the monk, Thomas Merton wrote that, you know, you climb up the, the ladder and rung by rung. And when you get to near the top, you suddenly realize it's been leaning against the wrong wall. Uh, and I think the challenge for most people is they feel that they've invested too much in climbing up that ladder. You know, there are too many years of schooling, too many years of training. You know, they have a lifestyle that they can't afford to um, sacrifice, etc. And, you know, I, I think the concept of right ladder is not to tell people you're right or you're wrong or do, go do it over again. It's to give a basis to decide, okay, to evaluate your life. And, you know, uh, on depending on the decision, 
depending on where you are and your circumstances, you know, it's up to you to make the decision. Do you, you know, do you uh, stay on this ladder and find other um, senses of purpose, you know, outside of work, for example, in your in your hobbies or your charitable giving or community? Or do you, in fact, climb back down the ladder, retrain and go do something else? But that's an individual journey and an individual question that depends, uh, you know, that each person is going to have to answer for themselves. So we'll, we'll throw in another Kierkegaard quote. You know, Kierkegaard talks about anxiety being the dizziness of freedom. And, you know, your book is full of great Stoic philosophy. The existential philosophers talk a great deal about how we're more free than we give ourselves credit for, right? We have we have the ability to reinvent our lives and choose a new path and climb ladder in ways that I don't feel like we give full expression to uh, because of fear or complacency or sunk costs like like you talked about. Or or I, I think oftentimes we can have these sort of well-meaning practical excuses, right? Like, well, I couldn't I couldn't restart my career now. You know, I'm I'm ten years in, or I couldn't move. My kids are in a school, and when you really break it down, you have way, way, way more freedom than you give yourself credit for. And that doesn't mean it won't be scary. Uh, that doesn't mean it won't be difficult. But I think reading that Stoic philosophy, that existential philosophy, will give you the sense that absolute reinvention is possible if you have the courage to do it if you find yourself on the wrong ladder look i 100 percent agree with you daniel i think you're right like you know like we see enough people um you know whether they're refugees or immigrants or you know people that have decided at the age of 50 that they're going to go back and you know um, study medicine because you know that's what the, the, is driving them you can do it it's not easy as you put it and it's not um you know something that you know is done lightly but I think to your point, you know, where I find fascinating about the Stoics, um, you know, is like like a Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, or Seneca, or Epictetus, the slave that was became a philosopher, is they lived their philosophy. And, you know, and so there are examples that I think, you know, 2,000 years ago, and I think there are examples that we can draw on to say they did do it. You know, there are examples of people that did it, 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 and it can be done. And, you know, there is fear, there is uh, some cost that you have to deal with. But, you know, if we're looking for uh, proof that it can be done, or if we're looking for motivation on doing it, I think the Stoic philosophers, the existential philosophers, are, are, are great uh, role models to look at to say that this isn't just theoretical, but, you know, it, it was practically applied by all of them. Yeah, absolutely. So you tell in the in the book one of my absolute favorite business stories. This is the story of sort of the genesis of the the Ferrari versus Lamborghini rivalry. So I'm going to ask you to tell sort of a truncated version of that story in a minute. So I'd heard that story before, but I want you to share it for folks who don't know. But you positioned it in a way that was unique for me. You possess, positioned it uh, in a way to talk about... Um, mimetic desire and mimetic competition. And so if you could relate that story and then talk about sort of the point that you were making by telling it. Sure. So, you know, for your listeners, I mean, those who aren't aware, let me just explain what mimetic desire is. So René Girard, who was an academic, wrote about mimetic desire. 
And what he was driving at is that he's seen throughout history that our desires are actually, we think they're internally generated, but by and large, they're triggered by other people or other things. And we see that in today's world with social media and reality TV, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians, for example. And the example that you talk about that I wrote about in my book is the Lamborghini and Ferrari story. So very, uh, you know, uh, quickly, the story goes that Lamborghini, Ferruccio Lamborghini, was a successful tractor manufacturer. And, you know, he rewarded himself with the Ferrari sports car. And, but Lamborghini was unhappy with the clutch. And he, he complained when he ran into Enzo Ferrari at a cocktail party. And apparently Ferrari told Lamborghini to stick to making tractors and that he would stick to making sports cars. Lamborghini was insulted and he set out to make a competing sports car and within four years was so successful in competing with Ferrari that his engineers, Lamborghini's engineers, begged him to let them build a race car to challenge Ferrari on the racetrack. Lamborghini, thinking of his 16-year-old son, refused. And Lamborghini, the company, never built a, a race car while he was running the company. The story that I was, uh, or the point I was trying to make in my book is that Lamborghini used mimetic desire to compete with Ferrari. So mimetic desire, to an extent, is, uh, is powerful, as in it drives our ambitions, it fuels innovation, it fuels competition. But it can take you too far. And, uh, you know, Lamborghini was smart enough to limit it. And this goes back to our earlier conversation about picking the right ladder or the right values. Lamborghini did not want his son, his 16-year-old son, to get caught up in the racing world. So he was able to put that value about what he wanted for his son above the value of winning his rivalry with Ferrari on the racetrack. So this it's such a fantastic story. If, if folks want more familiarity with Gerard's ideas... They can be a little weighty. I would read Luke Burgess's book on mimetic desire that I'm spacing on the name of, but it's really excellent. Um, do you remember the name? It's wanted, I think, but I read it and it's uh, a, a wanting, and I think it's it's it, it's an amazing book. Yeah. Um, very good book. It's a very good book. Yeah, and and it's it's an incredible story of how you know. In some ways, it was this slight or this pettiness that got the whole rivalry started in the first place, but he didn't allow that emotion to take him past a certain point. Right? Correct. Sort of an emotional event is what catalyzed the whole thing, but he wouldn't let it get ugly, kind of like past a point. And I think that's a fascinating story. Yeah. And I look, I totally agree. I think, you know, like again, you know, I think Ferrari, uh, Lamborghini harnessed the power of mimetic uh, desire to the right extent, but without letting it overpower or control his actions. And I think there is a very stoic element about that. The whole stoicism argument is the dichotomy of control. Focus on what you can control and ignore what you can't. And so, you know, uh, I think Lamborghini was very aware of what he wanted and what he could do to control it and what he couldn't do to control it. Well, let's let's talk about that dichotomy right now. The next part of your book that I want to focus on was was one of my favorite chapters. It was the chapter about acceptance, and it's the idea that we shouldn't expect the world to conform to our wishes, but that we should instead seek to adapt to the ebb and flow of life. Uh, you you quote Epictetus, who you mentioned earlier, who said, "Don't seek for everything to happen as you wish it would, but rather wish that everything happens as it actually will." 
then your life will flow well, right? Um, I think, you know, some of the great spiritual traditions talk about, you know, kind of moving from getting what we want to wanting what we have, right? Like learning to, to want what we already have. And I'm completely on board uh, philosophically. Mm-hmm. Practically, I'm terrible at it, right? And, and you know, you think about the last year, we'll, we'll move to the world of, of finance now. You, you think about the year that our clients just had where basically everything went down. Like, you know, even if they were well diversified, it was still just kind of an ugly year for them. And how practically do we get ourselves and our clients to sort of embrace this idea that life and markets are just this way sometime and there's not much we can do about it? Look, that's the million dollar question. And I think, you know, to your point, um, I've, you know, I, I don't think of anybody. And I think this is the one great thing about Stoicism. Stoicism wasn't preaching this as, you know, do this and, you know, uh, and everything is fine. They had, they wrote and they talked because it was a discipline that they had to remind themselves to do. So it was an issue, it was an idea of progress rather than perfection. And I think that, you know, this idea that we're not in control and accept, it's not that the the Stoics were suddenly like these, you know, um, Mr. Spock, Vulcans that weren't um, affected by anything that happened in the world. That's not the point. But they had to remind themselves always that this was outside of their control. From your, pers- uh, from your the, the point that you're making about the investment world and investors and, you know, how, how they can kind of incorporate this thinking into uh, uh, into their uh, world, you know, you know that there is a difference between luck and skill. And so playing the lottery or the slot machines is mostly luck. Winning the World Cup or the Super Bowl is mostly skill. But even where skill is involved, luck or randomness still plays a role. This is why there are frequently upsets in sports. One way to limit the influence of luck is to have a good process. Um, this is why good teams have, you know, uh, a, a scouting practice, have uh, good player development. They practice, practice, practice. I think in the same way, um, your listeners know that investing in the market requires skill, but it can still be affected by random, unexpected events, whether it's Russia invading the Ukraine or COVID-19. But a good process can limit the the role luck plays. So in investing, you don't control the market, you, geopolitics, or other people. This is where, if you have a good process and a good long-term investment strategy, and advisors and investors work together to craft that and to anticipate, you know, yes, this, you know, these are things that can happen. We don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know how much, but you know, a market correction is will happen at some point in the future. I think it can help investors accept uh, market movements. The way I talk to my investing clients, or I used to talk to my investing investing clients, is you know to kind of make the point that they have to understand that the stock market is a complex, adaptive, social system, and not a natural system. What do I mean by that? Well, if I asked a thousand people to hold a ball in front of them and drop it, we know that a thousand times the law of gravity will apply and it will the ball will fall. But if I asked a thousand people whether a particular stock was going to go up or not, the answer and the behavior of those thousand people could, in fact, impact the stock. So if enough people believe that the stock is going to go up, 
and act on that belief, the stock will go up. This is why what was powering the meme stock uh, mania in 2022. This is what powered the cryptocurrency bubble uh, in tw- in the last few years, etc. And I think this is why, as market uh, uh, commentators would uh, uh, agree, this is what causes bubbles to form and bubbles to burst. So I think it's the it's the you know uh, it's having a good process can limit the impact of random or luck uh, events or luck. But it's also an understanding from investors and uh, financial uh, advisors that, you know, it, it is the, the the stock market is a is a social system, not a natural system. So the behavior of people, the system determines the behavior of people, and the behavior of people determines the system. So it's a it a catch twenty two. Sure, I I had to just pull this up. I couldn't remember the quote. I wanted to get it right. So it's a quote by Murray Gell-Mann. And it, and it says, think how hard physics would be if particles could think. And that's kind of what we're up against. Right? I like that. That's a great it's quote. Good, yeah. Right? yeah. I, I, I knew your comments were putting me in mind of that quote. So yeah, I think you know, this isn't a physical science, right? This is a social science that over the long term has some basis in sort of economic reality, but in the short term can be completely disconnected from it. You know, the Wall Street Journal had a great article. <laughs> had a great article now uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it said something to the effect of uh, day traders are quitting and their families are really happy. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. And it was like all these folks who had enjoyed so much success uh, during the crypto bubble in the meme stock frenzy, who undoubtedly attributed to their own skill, right? I mean, we we know that people over index on their own skill and we know that they're yep. competent. But so all these people who made, you know, uh, eye-popping returns for 18 months or whatever it was, now are sort of being humbled. And and look, for all we know, they're they're now making the quote-unquote right moves, uh, but, but the market is fickle and the market is recursive, like you talked about, and the market is, uh, you know, a, a combination of, of luck and skill. Michael Mobison has the, the chart... Uh, I think it was him that that has a chart of the, the different games we play mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how much luck and skill is involved in each of them. That was instructive for me to see. Made me a little bit sad that baseball had so much luck in it, but <laughs> but uh, it was it was a uh, it's a fun it's a fun thing to think about as we sort of move through the world. No, look, I think and and it, this is where I. I you know, I agree, and I think this is where the connection for me to stoicism is stark. You know, like I, I think in particularly in today's society, I think you know we've got such technological progress that I think we some, some sometimes believe that we have a lot more control over events and people and things than we actually do. And you know, the, this luck versus skill—it's not to trivialize. Like, I mean, you know, there are, baseball is a complicated sport. It's uh, you know, it requires a lot of skill. For me, the takeaway on this characterization of luck versus skill is: no matter how skilled you are, you can still be subject to random events. Like, the best baseball team in the world, or the best pitcher in the world, can still be—you know—you um, can have lots of shutouts on any particular game. Can go in and be hit for ten home runs. Uh, and that that doesn't take away from the skill of that pitcher. It just is the fact that you know anybody can have a good day or an off day, or um, you know uh, uh, random events occur. And I think that the uh, 
one of the things that I will share with you, there is a, and I, um, I, I can't pronounce it, but there's a book uh, by, it, it's called The Drunkard's Walk, and it talks about how random life is. And one of the stories that the author talks about at the beginning is that in Spain, that there was this massive lottery, you know, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and you know, uh, uh, there, there was a man that won it. And when he was interviewed, how he came up with the, the, the right number, you know, he says that uh, he picked 48 because he dreamed about the number seven for seven nights in a row. <laughs> His point on this is that, like, you know, like we come up with stories for all sorts of these things. But, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's life is far more random than we want to accept. Yeah, I think it's M- now. Is that how you say That's right. That's yeah. exactly Mladenov on Drunkard's Walk. That's a great book. Great book. So your book is a great book. We're gonna we're gonna focus on one more thing. We're not gonna give away everything. We're gonna make people go buy it. So the the last question I'll ask you about the book uh, came from my favorite quote in the book, and it's a quote by Richard Rohr, and it says, "quote There is much evidence on several levels that there are at least two major tasks to human life. The first task is to build a strong container or identity." The second is to find the contents that the container was meant to hold. The first task we take for granted is the very purpose of life, which does not mean we do it well. The second task is more encountered than sought. A few arrive at it with much pre-planning, purpose, or passion. So this is a passage I've now shared with a, with a handful of friends because it was just really impactful for me. Does it, what does it mean to you? So it is one of my favorite quotes as well. And for your listeners, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan monk and has written a lot about uh, the second half of life and meaning and purpose and everything. And I, I really like his work. What I take the quote to mean is that we focus so much on forging our identity that we forget to focus on the characteristics, traits, and behavior that drives that identity. So for example, we may want to have a reputation as a good leader in, in, in business. We may work hard to get the promotion, the title, the status that we think conveys to the world that we are, in fact, a good leader. But if you act in a way that is inconsistent, being a tyrant to our team, you know, being unethical in how we deal with customers, kissing up and kicking down, the container identity is meaningless. Now, uh, there's a line from the Batman movie, with Christian Bale, which I really like. It says, and it goes something like this, it is not who you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. And I think that encapsulates and captures the essence of Rohr's passage to me. The right action is, in my view, to to decide what type of person you want to be. Something that David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, uh, has a book called The Second Mountain, and he talks about Adam one versus Adam two values. And what he means is that we focus our entire life on Adam one, our resume values, to be seen as smart, to be seen as hardworking, to be seen as successful. Only later in life, and only by some of us, that's Rohr's point, do we focus on Adam two, or what uh, Brooks calls eulogy values. How do we want to be remembered? What impact do we want to have had on the people that we leave behind? We want to be remembered as, you know, we, we, I think we probably care less about being remembered as hardworking or successful or smart 
we want to be remembered as kind, generous, principled, uh, a community uh, person, etc. So I think to me the message that Roar is giving, and it's harder to do than 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 it's stated, but it's to live your life focused on Adam two values versus Adam one values. So I I love this. My <clears throat> my sister in law passed away a few years ago in in her early thirties, and she uh, requested that her ashes be sprinkled at at various points across the globe. And then that that finally that there be some of her ashes remain at a at a grave site in Utah near near where her parents live, and so just recently, even though she died years ago because of COVID and sort of the other scattering mm-hmm. of ashes, it was only recently that we convened to sort of bury those ashes at that at that burial site in in Utah, and it was incredible to me as I walked through the the graveyard with my children, right? And we're looking sort of respectfully at the tombs of, of those who have gone before the, the gravestones. You really get a sense of what matters, right? Mm-hmm. There's no SVP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's, no, there's no managing director titles. There's no SVP. There's no salaries. Like, you know, everybody's the same in that moment. And it's all about mother brother father son you know loving this cherished that it's all about how we treated people and our relationships with other people and that just takes such a small minority of i think our daily bandwidth and our daily effort compared with these adam one values that you talked about and it's you know i understand like we have a need to make a living right Mm -hmm. i understand that some of the stuff is just sort of functional but I do think it's important to read books like, you know, yours, read book, books like the the two you mentioned, and kind of just stop and reflect on how you will be remembered and, and what matters in the bigger picture. Look, I, I think, that, and thank you for sharing that story. And, you know, I've had, I think part of the impetus for writing the book is something similar. Like I've had friends of mine, um, you know, that passed away suddenly very early, relatively young in life. And, you know, they were, uh, they were all, you know, uh, successful. There were doctors and others, et cetera. And I think to your point, look, everything that you say, like, you know, we're all uh, there to make a living. And I think it's important And nobody is talking about, you know, living in an ivory tower and not worrying about the realities of life, particularly when we have infl- inflation and taxes and everything else to worry about. It's just to try to put that into perspective. And, uh, you know, and I think that, and I think we need a reminder every once in a while that, you know, uh, it comes back to the Kierkegaard court, uh, quote, life is lived forwards, but has to be understood backwards. So, you know, there is a, again, we're naming books, but Bonnie Ware writes about the five regrets of the, of the dying, et cetera. And, you know, none of it is, oh, uh, I didn't work enough. I didn't make enough money, you know. And it, and the fact is that if life is a one-way journey, you know, for most people, you don't want to get to the stage where you're on your deathbed where you say, I wish I had thought, you know, um, uh, lived Adam 2 values more than Adam 1 values. So it's trying to have a reminder as, as much as possible without getting too philosophical in our day-to-day that, you know, this too shall pass and we get to a point where, you know, uh, it, it's too late to do anything else, right? Yeah. So after a deeply philosophical and poignant conversation, I'm going to pull us entirely out of that. And my last question, 
uh, is maybe a little bit of a deeper cut. I, I found some of your research. I found a piece you published in the Journal of Wealth Management that was news to me. It was really cool. I thought it was fascinating research. It was about the power of expectations. And you were looking at the predictive power of risk tolerance questionnaires versus other sorts of determinants, specifically demographic factors and expectations. Can you talk a bit about the, uh, about that research and the the interesting things you found? Yeah, and so just as background, I mean, part of the re- the reason that I was uh, that that topic got me interested is I've been uh, in the investment management world for a, a you know a number of years, and you know uh, worked with wealthy and ultra wealthy uh, investors. Went through the two thousand and eight Great Recession. And what always baffled me is that people acted inconsistently with what their risk tolerance questionnaire would have said. Um, and you know, despite the fact they would have told you at the outset that they can take risk and they understand the market, they're all sophisticated investors. So my research really focused on what predicted investors' risk-taking behavior. As you alluded to, the industry typically has investors fill out the risk tolerance questionnaires before investing with the implication being that the results of the questionnaire should be an accurate predictor of their actual behavior. And what I wanted to determine was one, is this in fact the case? And two, if it is or if it's not, what else could predict investor behavior? So perhaps not surprisingly to you or to um, your, uh, your listeners, my results showed that in fact, risk tolerance questionnaires do not predict risk-taking behavior by investors. And it's a finding that has support from uh, uh, many other researchers. Contrarily, I found that investors' return expectations were a far stronger predictor of risk-taking behavior. So if investors expected the future returns to be high in the stock market, they took more risk than if they didn't. I also found some interesting demographic factors. Uh, again, uh, more evidence. It's not new, but I mean, it's confirming uh, previous research. So uh, female investors, for example, took less risk than men. And this has been attributed to the fact that men tend to be more overconfident in their decisions than women typically tend to be. I found that the level of education actually didn't predict uh, uh, have any predictive value on risk-taking behavior. But what I did find, and this comes back to your first question about direct means of learning, I found that past experiences had a positive correlation with the level of risk an investor takes. So if they had good past experience, that they, it meant that they were going to be more comfortable taking risk now. And if they had bad past experience, they were less comfortable taking risk. I also found, uh, which I found interesting, um, is that investors have a far more nuanced view of risk than the standard academic treatment of risk as volatility. So uh, what most investors cared cared about was shortfall risk than volatility risk. They were worried about running out of money or not having enough saved up for a down payment than actually the you know the movements on a day to day basis of, uh, of 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 their portfolio. Now I'm not arguing that they weren't worried about the volatility. I'm just saying it was you know risk in their view, is far more multidimensional than the, 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 how it is strategically treated in the, in the industry. One other result I think that your listeners may be interested in is that um, behavioral biases, such as anchoring, uh, recency, 
uh, social comparison. I, what I what was interesting uh, finding was that it uh, it was not only investors were susceptible to those kind of biases, but the advisors themselves were also susceptible to it. And so I think this is something that all stakeholders, you know, whether it's an investor, whether it's an advisor, whether it's the firm that uh, uh, is uh, uh, hiring those advisors, the regulators, I think these are all, uh, this is something that state they, they should be aware of. Um, you know, fundamentally, and maybe the last thing I'll leave you uh, listeners with is that I, I found that investors believe in a strong process along the lines of what we talked about earlier. And uh, one thing that in my discussions or deep dive interviews with investors and advisors was they both advocated for a strong discovery process where an advisor truly learned about and understood the investor. Um, And that requires more than a KYC or a risk tolerance questionnaire. It required deep you know, behavioral type of interviews uh, that ge- and, and doing so generated far more trust between advisor and investor and led to long, better long-term results. That's a, that's a fascinating finding. That's something that I've sort of always believed intuitively, but never had sort of the empirical backing to stand behind. Now, now I've got it. So that's, that's fantastic. You know, there's sort of this, this, simplistic formula for happiness in life. And it's, you know, happiness is sort of expectations minus reality. And I think that the the same can be said of, of investments, right? And I think part of the the danger of, of what we saw last year coming out of some of the, the huge returns of, of the year before, and indeed the decade before, is that people had kind of grown accustomed to 12, 15, 17 exactly. annual returns. They sort of, ex- because of recency bias and continuity bias, they sort of expect that into the future indefinitely when we know that markets can be mean reverting and so they're getting the very opposite. And if the advisor hasn't prepared them, right, if the advisor hasn't inoculated them somewhat against the possibility of that, it's ugly. It's ugly. And I that's really powerful research you did there. Yeah, and I like the word uh, inoculation that you use, and I think that's that's critical. I think it's having that discussion up front to say, "Hey, uh, enjoy the good times, you know, and you know, be happy. I'm thrilled that you know I can get these good results for you, and that I beat the market for you. But just understand that you know, at some point, it's going to revert, um, you know. And but it's okay because we plan for it. You know, our strategy." is going to be, it's designed to take into account that the markets do behave in this way. And I think having that conversation in a meaningful way up front, I think really, you know, really manages that expectation and the relationship going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Sam, this was incredible. Learn so much. Um, it's a wonderful book. If you could tell us one more time, the name of the book, where folks can find it and where we can learn more about you and your thinking, that'd be great. Well, absolutely. Um, So the name of the book is Uphill, How to Apply Ancient Wisdom and Modern Science to Life's Choices and Challenges. And it's available on Amazon as an e-book or as a paperback. And um, listeners can find links to it. They can find it on Amazon, but there's links to it and uh, summaries of it on my website, which is www.samsivarajan.com. I also have articles and other material on my website, and listeners can find me on LinkedIn, and uh, I'm happy to uh, be in touch with anyone uh, that wants to contact me through my website or LinkedIn. 
Beautiful. All right, listeners, take these lessons. Go climb the right ladder. Thank you so much, Dr. Sam. Dr. Daniel, thank you very much. My pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.